Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and I want to welcome all of our viewers who are tuning in live tonight. What do you guys think of that new intro, huh? Short, sweet, and to the point. I like it. I really like it. I want to thank Hard Productions. He's the one who came up with that intro. And a big thank you to Ethan. That's an awesome intro. And all the gratitude in the world for him coming up with that. It is cool. It is horror. And my light just went out. Why did the hell did my light just go out? And it won't come back on. Oh, well, you guys could still see me. Anyway, uh, and most important about that intro, it is copyright free. That's that's going to be the name of the game moving forward. <laughs> uh, I want to welcome all of our moderators on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. want to say hello to Lisa Wilhelm, who's joining us. Colette is joining us on Facebook as well. Uh, of course, we have our moderators, Khaleesi, Saz. Uh, let's see who else is with us. Marie is also moderating on the Instagram side. Uh, welcome to Carol's from Argentina. Mormon is saying hello. Welcome to all you guys. Love the floating love hearts on Instagram. Keep those coming, guys. Uh, Kivich Jessica is also joining us. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome to the broadcast. I have no idea why this light went out. I mean, it was it just went out. It's not like it's battery powered. It's supposed to be plugged in. Anyway, the beauty of a live broadcast. Uh, so. Like I said, I want to welcome all of our viewers around the world. I hope everyone's doing well. Uh, did you guys hear the news? Apparently, I've been so wrapped up in our interviews the past couple of days. Ronnie DeFeo uh, passed away like two, three days ago. Now, for those of you guys that don't know, Ronnie DeFeo is the person who murdered his family in the Amityville house. And there's actually an article, well, there are a lot of articles about it, but here's Ronnie as he was getting arrested. So the DeFeo family was the family that was living in the Amityville house. Uh, Ronnie DeFeo claimed that he was told and possessed by evil forces to kill his family. And that's how the whole Amityville story started from there. The DeFeo family, uh, you know, there were, you know, the it was alleged that the father had mob ties, and anyway, a whole bunch of rumors were swirling around. But anyway, uh, Ronnie DeFeo passed away in prison, uh, literally days before he was going to go up for another parole hearing. So I don't know how many of you guys have heard that or not, but yeah. It was actually a surprise to me. Like I said, I've been so wrapped up in our interviews and everything that's going on. I didn't read the news until I was getting ready for tonight's episode. So there you guys have it. Uh, Colette writes, I remember someone turned that bad water pipe on to kill the crops and poison the drinking water. What are you guys talking about? Did I miss something? Uh, Lisa Wilhelm writes, Beta came up to the ground not sure about the water pipes you guys talking about beta and the walking dead want to welcome summer hey summer thank you for joining us tonight on a school night no less uh want to say hello to all the people who just joined us on instagram protect protect your digital creations 
uh, Amityville, Long Island, New York. Yep, that's exactly right. That's where the Amityville house is. Uh, right in Long Island, New York. And I've told you guys this story. I, you know, I, grew, I was born and raised in New York City. We would go out to Long Island uh, quite regularly. We had family out there. And when I was a little kid, uh, this is probably pretty soon after I watched the Amityville house horror for the first time. Uh, we were driving back from a relative's house, back to our house in Queens. And my dad took a wrong turn. And we ended up on this uh, very suburban road on Long Island. And he went to make a, a U-turn. And as he was making the U-turn, I will swear on my life, we saw the Amityville house. Now, it was probably not, but we were in Long Island. And you know the house with the with the, the, the windows that are, have, are not there anymore. I mean, the people who own the house have done everything they could to change it from how it used to look back then. Because even down to the street number... They had the street number of the house changed because so many people, it's a tourist attraction. It's become a tourist attraction and it has been for decades. But anyway, my dad made a wrong turn. He was making a U-turn to get us back onto the main street. And I swear to God, we came face to face with the Amityville house and it scared the living shit out of me. I mean, here I am, I'm a little kid. I don't even know how old I am. It's one of my earliest memories in life. I had just watched the Amityville House Horror for the first time. Those creepy red beady eyes are giving me nightmares. Probably one of the only or few horror movies that have given me nightmares. Those red beady eyes in the movie still haunt me to this day. Uh, well safe to say after I saw that house, well, what I thought was the house, it could be the house, it could not be the house. More than likely, it wasn't the house. But anyway, when you're a little kid, it doesn't matter. It scared the living shit out of me. And, you know, to this day, every so often, I still have nightmares about those red beady eyes in the Amityville house horror. That movie was scary. It was good. You know, we're talking about you know, late 70s, uh, I believe no no later than the early 80s that the original movie come out with Margot Kidder. Uh, it was a scary paranormal movie. It set the stage for a lot of the, you know, paranormal movies that we have out today, like the whole Conjuring universe, uh, you know, paranormal activity, you name it. I mean, that movie back then sort of set the stage and we all know about the controversy that surrounded the Lutz family and they moved in soon after the DeFeo murders they only stayed in the house for 28 days they fled in the middle of the night uh leaving all their belongings behind uh a book was written they made money they were accused of fabricating everything we ne we'll never know. We know that the Warrens went in, investigated it. Lorraine Warren said there was a presence in the house. But the thing that, you know, contradicts everything is that every person that has lived in the house since has not reported a single paranormal occurrence happening in that house. So, who knows? 
Was it something attached to the DeFeo family? Uh, and then the Lutz, and then it went to the Lutz family. And then after they fled, it just disappeared. Who knows? But one thing about Long Island, there is a lot of Indian burial ground in Long Island, New York. That is an absolute fact. Uh, that is not made up. That is absolutely true. There's a lot of uh, sacred Indian burial ground that was uh, disturbed. It was disturbed long time ago. And when Long Island was, you know, becoming populated way back when. So it's, we'll never know. It's up to everyone's guess. There are some real haunted houses out in Long Island as there are all over the world. Uh, are there, is there an uptick of haunted houses in Long Island, New York, as opposed to other places in the United States and around the world? No, there isn't. But just like everywhere else, Long Island does have their share of, of haunted houses. Uh, Summer writes, the Amityville horror movie did scare me as well. Yeah, it's scary. Uh, Colette writes, last night you said the crops failed. <laughs> Colette says, no way I would go in that house. Uh, let's see, just reading through the chats here. Uh, Colette writes, it was a scary house at the time. And even though they changed out those windows, just knowing what happened there, and just the sheer fact that a whole family was murdered, that's a fact. That's undisputable. A whole family was murdered while they were sleeping by the oldest son. That's not a place I would want to live in. It's just not. Lisa writes, I wouldn't go in there either. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. Uh, Mormon writes, was that the movie that the pool was built over a graveyard? I think you're thinking about Poltergeist. You're thinking about the Poltergeist movie. The whole the whole Poltergeist movie, not just that house or that pool was built over a graveyard, but the whole neighborhood was built over a graveyard. They found out towards the end of the movie that the developer who bought and developed that land, there was a cemetery there. And instead of doing the right thing by relocating the cemeteries, which the proper ways to actually exhume the bodies and the headstones and move them to a different place, they took a shortcut. They left the bodies in the ground and just removed the headstones. And then this, they decided to build a whole neighborhood around that. That's, that's a, it, I mean, it's a cheap way of doing it. It's definitely not the right way of doing it. And so that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about Poltergeist, which is another great movie from the 80s that was scary. C.C. Weezy writes, The first Amityville horror was one of my first horror movies seen as a kid. My older brother's birthday is Halloween, so every year as a kid, we would go trick-or-treating and see it. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good tradition. Uh, Lisa says, I wouldn't go in there either. Uh, did they ever tear that house down? The Amityville house? No, it's still there. The Amityville house is still there. It was actually bought by a new owner a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, but it's still there. Uh, the street number that it had 
for the longest time was changed, but it's on Ocean Drive in Long Island. So, all right, Summer, it's a school night. Thanks for dropping by. It's always great to see you. Lisa writes, ew. (laughs) Anyway, let's get on to some more stories that we have for you guys. So, Ronnie DeFeo has passed away. So, that's definitely a chapter that has ended right there. So, for those of you that don't know, the uh, South by Southwest Film Festival started on the 16th. And it's running straight through Saturday. It's one of the biggest festivals. It's not just movies. It's also a music festival. It's basically a big-ass entertainment festival. Uh... But the movies are dominating the festival and have been for a while. It's where independent films can go, showcase their movies, distributors come, watch uh, the people that made the movies, hope their movies get picked up, get released, and whatnot. So we're going to be reading a lot of stories in the days to come about movies that that were premiered at South by Southwest. So this one is called The Feast. The Feast is a slow-burn folk horror nightmare and a can't-miss flick in 2021. Certain dinner parties just carry an inherent layer of menace. I don't mean those nights when you get together with your friends to have a fun meal either. I mean stuffy, staged, and at least half the people at the table have an agenda dinner parties the, uh, the ones that are all about congratulating each other on the food and smiling awkwardly across the table, ducking the tension hovering in the room, right up until the moment someone decides to say what they really came here to say. And when I think about dinner parties and horror movies, my mind goes straight to The Invitation. Uh, so how many of you guys have seen The Invitation? But yeah, that was a messed up dinner party right there. That menace forms the baseline of an exquisite sense of dread bubbling up through every frame of the feast. Director Lee Haven Jones' Welsh horror film that just premiered at this year's South by South by Southwest. There's a lot of great genre fare at the festival this year, from Barbara Crampton's darkly comic bloodfest. Jacob's wife, Barbara Crampton, was a guest of ours. It's uh, still very active in the horror genre. Uh, she had a movie come out back in November. No, sorry, beginning of February called Sacrifice. And apparently another one of her movies uh, was premiered at the festival. Uh, to South African bio-horror gem, Jaya. Even among other standouts, the, fest, the feast got under my skin because it could have stuck with that baseline dinner party dread and still worked quite well. Instead, the film goes deeper and darker, and the result is a future folk horror classic about what happens when the people who feel entitled to everything finally end end up taking too much. The feast takes place in an estate in the Welsh countryside where a sleek, cold, modern mansion has replaced a farmhouse. An influential and wealthy family lives there, 
two parents trying to appear as sophisticated and powerful as possible, two sons trying to take what they can while they can, and on this particular night, they're hoping to grow even more influential and wealthy with the help of a trusted friend. It is an important night, a night of indulgence, implying others with food and drink, which is why they need a local girl to assist in serving the meal. Enter Caddy, a hypnotic Anes Alwi, who arrives quietly and dutifully to get to work, even as the family dysfunction continues to creep in around the edges. As the sun goes down and the guests arrive, even more dysfunction creeps into the picture, and it becomes clear that something is very wrong. It might be catty or it might be something else, but the feast becomes about more than just putting on a show around a dinner table. What's actually going on here is, of course, better left to the viewer to find out as they watch the film, but what makes the feast particularly effective is not just what where it's willing to go, but how it goes there. Jones and screenwriter Roger Williams take patient, confident, slow narrative steps to step up the horrors of this particular night in the country, and it all works because the filmmakers know exactly when to let a reveal drip out and when to hold things back. There's a mythology lurking beneath everything from the family's own greed and manipulation to Caddy's own distracted, detached nature, but the film only ever tells you enough to get you to the next reveal, and the effect is absolutely spellbinding. And, of course, like so many great horror films in this particular subgenre, this series of reveals, twists, and brutal payoffs is all layered over a deeper, more existential vein of horror. The feast is about familial tension, about neighborly tension, and very localized greed. But it's also about the larger terror of what happens when gluttony of all kinds come your only way to draw meaning from the world. It's about when consumption is all that is left. This is a film that takes aim not just at the awkwardness of a certain kind of a dinner party, but at the very act of feasting in your own closed-off castle while the world around you collapses. It's a whole different layer of dread, and it builds to a nightmarish conclusion. The Feast is one of the first can't-miss horror films of 2021, a slow-burning nerve shredder that might ensure you never go to a dinner party ever again. If you're a horror junkie, see it as soon as possible. I would love to see it. I don't think it's quite available yet for us if it got, if it just premiered uh, at the festival. But this definitely sounds interesting and uh, one I'm most likely going to be checking out when it does become available. Phantom Guys giving us a thumbs up, saying, I love The Walking Dead. Lisa is with us on Facebook, says, we have uh, quite a few haunted houses uh, in Chicago, too. Oh, yeah, they're everywhere. 
There's not a place, there's not a corner in the world that doesn't have a haunted house or some kind of haunting. Now, the I, I personally believe that the level of haunting, it all depends on the people and how much they can experience. So that's just my own personal opinion. So moving on, uh, The Walking Dead, theory, Leia and Maze both belong to the Reapers. You buy that? I mean, Maze was holed up in that warehouse. We assume he had to go out for supplies. He did not have like a whole stash of food up in that attic. So, but part of a larger group? No. And Leah, I mean, she was also a shut-in. Living in the cabin, fishing, living off the land, uh, minding her own business. So, I really don't think so. But, let's see what Screen Rant has to say. After debuting The Reapers, The Walking Dead Season 10 separately introduced Leah and Maze. Uh, both characters connected to the show's new villains, question mark. The Walking Dead's Reapers remain shrouded in mystery, but could Leah and May secretly be a part of this villainous group? The Walking Dead Season 10 official finale aired in late 2020 after a significant delay, but neatly wrapped up the Whisperer's arc as Daryl, Negan, and Gabriel with some help from Maggie, led the final attack against Beta and the Undead Horde. This, the episode also teased the Commonwealth ahead in The Walking Dead Season 11, but before then, AMC's Zombie Apocalypse series is releasing a series of standalone episodes that focus in on a small group and character pairings, from Daryl and Carol to Negan and his late wife, Lucille. The first of these anthology offerings starred Maggie's new group, but also introduced a brand new batch, batch of villains called the Reapers. These enigmatic antagonists hounded Maggie out of her previous community, although she hasn't yet worked up the courage to talk about it and are doggedly pursuing Lauren Cohen's character with the intent to kill. As uh, far as we know, some guy named Pope has marked her. Why? We don't know yet. Uh, only one Reaper has officially appeared in The Walking Dead so far, an unnamed sniper who attempts to pick Maggie and her friends off in the forest, ending his own life with a grenade rather than giving up any information. The assailant does at least reveal the Reaper leader is called Pope, and Maggie has been marked. The Walking Dead has since moved on to other business, namely a Daryl love story and a scavenging hunt starring Gabriel and Aaron. But while the Reapers appear to have taken a back seat, has The Walking Dead secretly been introducing new members all along? Now, why Leah could be a Reaper. The Walking Dead Season 10's Find Me, which was the episode before the last one, takes place largely during the show's big time skip, with Daryl searching the riverbanks for any sign of Rick Grimes. 
But in this hopeless place, Daryl found love. And even in the zombie apocalypse, dogs prove the best wingman. Daryl encounters Leia living alone in a remote cabin, and they eventually become a couple. The trice is tragically short-lived as Leah abruptly goes missing while Daryl is busy rick-watching. Although Leah seems to be alone in the woods, parts, uh, parts of her story don't add up, suggesting she could have fallen in with the Reapers. What I'm going to say right there before continuing, if, which I really don't think so, but if she has fallen in with the Reapers, it's well after whatever events happened between her and Daryl. We have no idea if she's still alive or not. We may never see her again. We might see her again. We don't know. But if she is a Reaper or fell in with the Reaper group, I definitely believe it happened well after Daryl. Firstly, Leah tells Daryl about her background in the military. Describing her fellow soldiers as family, Leah survived alongside her squad and adopted son when the outbreak began, but ended up alone with Dog after Undead descended upon their camp. As soon as the Reapers debuted in The Walking Dead, their militaristic tactics were evident, with the sniper in Home Sweet Home proving well-trained and possessing all the necessary equipment. It may be a coincidence that in the very next episode, Leah claims to have also have a history in the armed forces. Then there's the matter of Leah strangely disappearing without her beloved dog. Perhaps the only reason Leah might depart the cabin would be the unexpected return of her old squad. The band of brothers and sisters who swore to fight alongside each other when the apocalypse began. That does not explain why she would not take the dog. Leah's military allies, who she never, who we, who she never actually saw die, might have gone on to the form the Reapers and suffered an ethical fall from grace, as many do in The Walking Dead. The fledgling Reapers then spotted Leia in her cabin and collected their old friend, possibly by force. That would explain why the dog was left behind. This is one of the very few plausible explanations for Leia leaving dog behind, which is what I just said. The animal represents Leia's late son, so she wouldn't want dog tra traveling with a group that has turned to sinister methods in her absence. When Daryl and Leah reunite in the present-day timeline, she may not be the same person he left behind. And nobody really is in the Walking Dead universe. Now, why Maze could be a Reaper. Let's see what they have to say about this one. If the Walking Dead Season 10, you know, introducing two characters with military training in successive episodes, the Sniper and Leah, is a coincidence... The addition of a third surely demonstrates a pattern forming. Unlike Leia, Maze doesn't reveal his past to Aaron and Gabriel in the post-intercourse glow of a roaring fire. I gotta repeat that line again. In the post-intercourse glow 
of a roaring fire. But he's certainly no ordinary survivor. Maze is silent enough to sneak up on, on the Alexandria duo while they're drunk, admittedly, and he ties up Aaron with minimal fuss. This doesn't appear to be his first rodeo either. At the very least, Maze is, survival, is a survival expert with plenty of skill and experience in combat. A history in the military would come as no surprise, and similarly to Leia would explain how he's been able to live alone in a post-apocalyptic landscape. He wasn't exactly living alone, although... I would not actually call keeping your brother handcuffed in the upstairs attic uh, a traveling companion either. For someone whose only companion is a tied-up twin, <laughs> I got to stop putting in my comments because as soon as I do, they end up writing exactly what I say. Anyway, for someone whose only company is a tied-up twin, May seems remarkably well-stocked. Gabriel is surprised to learn his captor carries a full-loaded machine gun, and Maze doesn't think twice about wasting a few bullets. The Walking Dead already hinted that the Reapers were well-armed, and May's weapon could have been sourced from the same supply, explaining his liberal use of ammo. It's also strange that Maze kept a wild boar locked up in this hideout, instead of simply killing and eating it like most other hunters in The Walking Dead. Well, maybe he was looking for a mate for the boar. And they could have little baby boars. I mean, that's plausible, right? Was Robert Patrick's character intending to share the animal with a larger group? That's that's a stretch. That's a stretch. Maybe the biggest hint that Maze holds a Reaper membership card is the burned-down house Gabriel and Aaron discover shortly before reaching his warehouse. And yeah, them coming across across that burned-down house is not just an. I don't believe it's just an episode filler, just to fill up some time. That has meaning, and it's meaning that we're not yet to know about but keep it in mind because it may come up either in the next few episodes or sometime in season 11 when the reaper when the reapers were hunting maggie's group several episodes ago they tried burning down the building her people were camped in the crumbling home and one more looks to have suffered the same fate that's a good point and the chances are the reapers were responsible with Maze living so close by, he could have been involved. That's a good point. I mean, I got to say, that's that's a good point. I um, can't argue that. Fire has been a theme in these uh, new episodes, which ever since Maggie came back in Home Sweet Home, in the episode we got last week. So I'm not saying that they're right and Maze is a part of the Reapers, uh, but just remember that scene with the house. It's going to become relevant. What Leia and Maze being Reapers means for the Walking Dead. If Leia and Maze are both revealed to be Reapers in the Walking Dead's future, this proves the wildly held assumption that these villains are, are comprised of ex 
military types corrupted by the zombie apocalypse. And just for the sake of argument, everyone has been corrupted by the zombie apocalypse in one way or another. Consequently, the Reapers could pose the biggest threat yet to Alexandria, the likes of Negan, Alpha, and the Governor were were all amateurs who adapted to the outbreak and learned on the job. Wow. If the Walking Dead heroes came across an enemy faction who posed proper armed force training, their ragtag militia simply isn't going to hold up. And we already know of groups that are well more trained and armed than our heroes. Of course, the CRM is number one on the list, and the Commonwealth, which is coming up in Season 11 as well. They're both, uh, you know, big groups. The Commonwealth, uh, 50,000, and the CRM, we learn from World Beyond, is at least 200,000 strong. The Walking Dead proves uh, its new spin-off. Oh, that's a related story. Leia and May's potential involvement with the Reapers also gives the new baddies all the more reason to attack Alexandria. In Home Sweet Home, the Reapers were solely looking to kill Maggie, and anyone else was simply collateral damage. If the Reapers came knocking at Alexandria's gate, demanding Maggie in exchange for everyone else's safety, Lauren Cohen's character won't stand by and let friends be slaughtered in her name. But if Maze was a Reaper, the villains will have beef with Aaron and Gabriel too. While Leia probably can't wait to take her anger out on Daryl, Though Leia and Maze, responsibly for bringing the Reapers to Alexandra, no longer lie solely at Maggie's feet. They're everyone's problem now. Fortunately, Daryl's romance with Leah might offer a lifeline if he and Dog can talk her around. With The Walking Dead Season 11 acting as the show's finale, future storylines will likely focus on the Commonwealth, not leaving much room for a secondary group of villains. That I agree with. I think the Reapers are going to be another Terminus. That's what I think the Reapers are going to be. Uh, I would not be surprised if by the end of the sixth episode, in these bonus episodes, the Reapers have been completely dealt with. They had, They spent, if you guys remember, at the end of season four, a whole half season of everybody traveling to Terminus. And it was literally over in a couple of episodes at the beginning of season five. I think this is something similar along those lines. The Reapers were brought in, uh, in my opinion, just for these six episodes. And by the time season 11 proper starts, uh, sometime in the fall, I think they uh, were they're going to be a thing of the past. That's my opinion. Uh, let's see. Just looking through everybody that's come in on Instagram. Welcome to Ralph. Uh, Rustam has also joined us. Thank you guys for joining us. Looking at the time. Next on the list, uh, a new Netflix horror series from The Haunting of Hill House. Creator marks the start of filming with a set photo. 
now I'm a big haunting uh, fan of the Netflix series. The first one, The Haunting of Hill House, the one that came out of several months ago, The Haunting of Bly Manor. I love those movies. That's why I decided to uh, share this. We've had The Haunting of Hill House and in 2020, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Creator Mike Flanagan may be moving away from The Haunting series for a while, but he's sticking with Netflix. The Horror Supremo is now filming a new show and has marked the occasion with a behind-the-scenes set photo. Taking to Twitter, Flanagan posted an image with a clapperboard, naturally, from the first day on the set of The Midnight Club. Uh, Flanagan also has another series, The Midnight Mass, that has wrapped filming and is out later this year. So let's see if we can see this picture. So there it is. That's the big behind the scene moment right there of uh, the first take of The Midnight Club. Not really much to go on. Anyway, but let's get back. Let's back up a bit. For those of you who haven't come out from behind the sofa after Mike Flanagan scared you silly the last few times, The Midnight Club may have flown under the radar. Based on the novel by Christopher Pike, The Midnight Club revolves around a small group of terminally ill teenagers who are sent to live out their last days in the Rotterdam home. While there, they partake in spooky and scary stories while also agreeing that the first of them to die should try to contact everyone from the afterlife. And that is always a bad idea. Now, if you guys have watched enough horror movies, making that kind of a pact with a friend or a family member is a bad idea. Don't do it. If the premise and the haunting series are anything to go by, it has all the makings of another hair-raising horror series on Netflix. The 10-episode series is currently undated, and the cast includes the likes of Heather Langenkamp, Nightmare on Elm Street, wow, Uh, the relatively newcomers Igby Rigney, I'm not making that up, that's actually the name, Igby Rigney, Uh, Ruth Codd, and Anara Shepard. For more on the streaming service and the show, you can click here. So there you guys have it. Igby Rigney. I wonder if that's a stage name or if that's their real name. Igby Rigney. Igby Rigney. Igby Rigney. Say that five times real fast. All right. Now, another South by Southwest film. Uh, I'm just reading what you guys are writing uh, <laughs> uh, some stuff you just can't repeat on the air. All right. Get ready for a bloodbath with exclusive photos from uh, South by Southwest in the horror hit Jacob's Wife. And we just read about this. This is the Barbara Crampton film. And that's Barbara Crampton. Uh, you know, this Barbara Crampton is a woman that just does not age. Uh, you know, when she was our guest, uh, she's a beautiful woman. Let's just leave it at that. The festival may be virtual once again this year, but South by Southwest is still rolling out great new genre fair in 2021. 
One of the busiest this time around is Jacob's Wife, a horror film with a darkly comic bite starring the legendary Barbara Crampton in the title role. Crampton, who told Sci-Fi Wire ahead of the film's premiere about the deep connection she felt with her character, stars as Anne, the wife of a small-town minister who dutifully supported her husband, fellow genre great Larry Fezzenden, for years but still feels that she's lost something of herself. Then, while in pursuit of a personal passion project, a brutal tragedy brings Anne into contact with the master, quote-unquote. Sorry, a being who grants her a new sense of life and energy. Suddenly, Anne feels more vibrant than she's felt in years, but this new vitality comes at a terrible price. Check out this just-released trailer below. So, let's, let's watch it. Screw it. Let's watch this trailer and see what it's about. Because uh, I love Barbara Crampton. I think she's great. So let's check this out. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We make plans for things. Life happens. I want to live a bigger life. You know, Anne, I am surprised that you wound up marrying Jacob. Whatever happened to the adventurous Anne? Oh, this is so tempting. I just can't do it to Jacob. Oh! Damn. Damn. Who are you? That's odd. You've it's got a new vampire movie. What? Eh. Oh, good, you're home. Get changed. I'd like to go out. 40 years I've known this woman. Every day the same. Now, I don't know who I'm coming home to. How much of that could I get? You want the blood? I feel more alive than I have in years. Hey, Mrs. Fetter, you all right? Mrs. Fetter? Holy. Damn. It wasn't me. Of course it was you. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Why didn't you tell me when this first happened? I felt ashamed. As you should. Husbands love your wife. He loves his wife. Loves himself. I want to make my own decisions from now on. You ever see something you couldn't explain, Sheriff? <laughs> you don't know how to fight for me because you've never done it. Give me the strength to save her soul. We need to finish this. All right, now that looks interesting, okay? I mean,. I'm not a big fan of horror comedies, but it does, like Khaleesi said, it looks freaking awesome in a very nice way. It looks like it was very well done. We all know how great Barbara Crampton is. <laughs> and uh, her husband walks in, 
while she's devouring a guy on her kitchen floor, and her response is, it wasn't me, with her face being soaked in blood. That's hysterical. As the trailer reveals, Jacob's wife begins as a domestic drama that descends into horror and then explodes into vampiric, often darkly comic madness as Anne and Jacob must learn to navigate their new lives in the wake of Anne's encounter. In the exclusive photos below, you can see a little more of that madness as the bloody mayhem of the film takes hold of its characters. I think that looks great. I think that looks hysterically great. Um, as Crampton told Sci-Fi Wire, it's Anne's encounter and the awakening that followed it, which immediately drew her to the material several years ago and ultimately led her to shepherd the project into its final form as both star and producer. We wanted to highlight a woman's awakening to herself, to recapturing her youth and gaining a zest for life, and having feelings like she's never had before in her life. We wanted it to be a film about hope and renewal, Crampton said. All those things were in the early drafts, but we wanted to highlight different aspects that maybe weren't as fully fleshed out as the original in the original draft. So it just took us a while to capture that and to make it into what it is right now. The result is a labor of love, equal parts funny and scary and emotional, that arrived at South by Southwest Wednesday night to critical acclaim and social media buzz. If you weren't able to catch the film during the festival, though, you don't have to wait long to see more for yourself. Jacob's Wife arrives in theaters and on video on demand next month on April 16th. There you go. That is another one that you guys should uh, check out. Colette writes, I will never look at steak the same. <laughs> That's funny. She's, for those on Instagram who don't get the full screen, she was at a supermarket and she asked the butcher, how much more of this can I get? pointing at the blood of some rare meat. So, that was pretty funny. Welcome to Fayat, who's with us on Instagram. Thank you for joining. Uh, Rezga is laughing. So, anyway, that's pretty funny. Anyway, in the time that we have left, guys, I want to get to our uh, topic. And today's topic is about cults. Uh, particularly, cults portrayed in horror films. Uh, Looper has a great clip on some of the best horror movie cults and how they've been portrayed over the years. Uh, we're going to watch this together. We're going to go over it together in the time that we have left, which is not a lot of time. It's about a 12-minute video, and we have just under that, actually. But let's try to watch as much as we can on this about cults and take it from there. As soon as I can get it to come up, which it's not doing. So I have to go and get it again. Here we go. Mention horror movies about cults, and fans can list titles both new and old, but some are far scarier than others. Whether they're about hippie devil worshippers or British pagans, these horror movies all feature some truly terrifying cults. 
England's Hammer Films briefly stepped away from its cycle of gothic horror for this exciting 1968 adaptation of Dennis Wheatley's novel, The Devil Rides Out, about a satanic cult's pursuit of a pair of unwilling initiates. Hammer star Christopher Lee took the heroic route here as the suave occultist and adventurer defending two people against a diabolical devil worshiper played by Charles Gray. The script by legendary so Iron Legend author movies. Richard Matheson streamlines the novel into Both a series of thrilling set pieces, including an all-night assault by various spirits, including the Angel of Death. While Lee and his companions protect themselves from inside the confines of a pentacle diagram. As depictions of cults go, the film succeeds at portraying the overpowering mind control. The villain needs only his velvety voice and piercing eyes to suggest tremendous psychic power, used to hold acolytes as well as the extreme lengths a cult will go to in order to retain them. The film's depiction of a satanic ritual, complete with the appearance of a demonic goat-headed figure, also strikes the right balance of frenzy, terror, and ecstasy. When hippie Satanists force-feed LSD to a small-town baker, his grandson gets revenge by selling them meat pies laced with the blood of a rabid dog. The cultists turn homicidal and not only lay waste to the town, but they also spread the disease to the locals. One of the first films to receive an X rating for violence, David Durston's low-budget early 70s freakout I Drink Your Blood has its share of dated dialogue and off-kilter scenes. But as the disease claims more victims and the rabid cultists and townsfolk butcher each other, That's the film becomes a surprisingly right graphic and intense viewing experience that builds to a nail-biting siege. Intentional or not, it's hard to not see the film's clash between hippies and blue-collar workers as some kind of statement on fears about the counterculture, which at the time of the film's release were fully ablaze thanks to a real-life cult leader, Charles Manson, whose crimes inspired Durston's script. While most of the cults in the films mentioned in this list are openly diabolical, the religion practiced in 1973's The Wicker Man isn't entirely sinister, at least at first. The people of Summer Isle, a tiny island off the coast of Scotland, follow a pagan practice connected to many ancient traditions. We've got May Day celebrations complete with a maypole, a spiritual connection to nature, and the belief that sacrifice will result in a fruitful harvest. That the sacrifice in question is human isn't inherently evil in the eyes of the island's oh, leader and his like constituents, but instead, they view it as a centuries-old tradition. However, visiting English policeman Neil Howey, played by actor Edward Woodward, whose devout Christianity and virginal status make him an object of keen interest among Summer Isle's locals, would undoubtedly agree, especially in the horror film's shocking conclusion. That split perspective, what's monstrous to some is just a part of life to others, is what endeared the Wicker Man to horror fans for decades, especially among the folk horror movement, which considers the film a forerunner to major titles in that subgenre. The Witch, The Ritual, and Midsummer all owe a debt to this movie. Oh, and that 2006 remake with Nicolas Cage? Don't bother. 
even for a laugh. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Satanic mayhem meets gear-grinding action in 1975's Race with the Devil, a favorite of drive-in and grindhouse aficionados for its mix of horror and vehicular stunts. Peter Fonda and the great Warren Oates star as motorcycle salesmen piloting an RV to a vacation in Colorado with their wives. The trip is derailed on a lonely stretch of Texas road where the couples witness a ritual that I'm culminates in human sacrifice. What follows is the traditional paranoia plotline in many cult-based horror films, with Fonda and Oates discovering that their efforts to bring the murder to light only reveal that the law, townspeople, and even a bar band are in cahoots with the diabolical worshippers. Unlike other protagonists in their position, Fonda and Oates fight back against the sinister cabal resulting in some high-octane action set pieces, including a ferocious highway pursuit that rivals big-budget studio productions for sheer bravado. It's a mix of brilliant horror and brilliant stunts that results in one of the most crowd-pleasing cult horror films of the 1970s. At first blush, English writer-director Ben Wheatley's 2011 film Kill List plays as a dark psychological thriller with a troubled military veteran channeling his simmering rage into work as a hitman. But as he and his gun-toting partner brutally work their way through a list of targets, it slowly becomes apparent that both the intended victims Doesn't and their mysterious like employer Biden? are somehow linked to a shadowy <laughs> pagan cult with far-ranging influence and an appetite for sacrifice. Like Shot in just 18 hair. days and largely improvised by its cast, Kill List raises many questions but leaves most unanswered by its devastating conclusion. In doing so, writes, Wheatley yes. allows our own fears about the cult's intention and its members to run rampant, upping the paranoia and disorientation that's a key element of the plot for most horror movies Joe about Biden dangerous cults. And if you want more you. films like Kill List, Wheatley has continued to explore the world of secret organizations and identities in a diverse array of films, from the dystopian high-rise and the psychedelic folk horror of a field in England to the latest adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's classic thriller, Hello, Rebecca. Charles Manson and his followers, and also known as Welcome. The Family, have been the focus of countless films and television projects including two adaptations of Helter Skelter, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Netflix series Mindhunter, and even a bizarre stop-motion animated film called Live Freaky Die Freaky. But one of the most grueling depictions of life on the Spawn Ranch, where Manson and his followers lived, is the uh, 19... We're running short on time. Let me just flick through this to see... Even more harrowing is the film's wraparound story, which follows a modern-day television news reporter's efforts to compile a documentary segment on the deaths. In these scenes, this is some interesting stuff. Oh, VHS. in the three films that comprise the VHS trilogy of found footage horror can be hit or miss, but nearly every fan of the franchise agrees that the most full-tilt crazy, gore-soaked entry is Safe Haven from 2013's VHS 2. The story begins with a news crew conducting an investigation into an obscure Indonesian cult. 
but as they probe deeper into the group's activities, it becomes apparent that the cult is preparing for a reckoning, which entails mass suicide, zombies, gallons of blood, and ultimately a monstrous supernatural entity. The film unleashes these horrors at a breakneck pace that barely allows the viewer to comprehend what they're seeing before the next nightmare makes its presence known. That's intense and overpowering, but equally unsettling is the cult member's mindless self-destruction as the reckoning takes root, which echoes the terrible real-life events at Jonestown, the Waco Siege, and Heaven's Gate. Uh, we're going to stop it right there on the uh, VHS series because we're going to... We don't have enough time, but uh, that was a good history lesson on uh, particularly horror movies involving cults from the 70s. I saw a couple of titles there that I have never heard of before, but uh, they sound interesting. I'll give them that much. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody who tuned in tonight. It's been my treat and honor to be here and talk to you guys. Thank you so much. Tomorrow is uh, Friday, so the start of the weekend is almost upon us. I hope uh, everyone has a good day tomorrow. I'll be back on the air again tomorrow night. For any view new viewers who are tuning in tonight, if you want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. This show uh, simultaneously streams every night to YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch and Twitter. Look us up on any of those platforms. Just search for Dead Talk Live. Sorry, just search for Dead Talk Live. Reminder: Monday we have Return of the Living Dead. Uh, Tom Matthews is going to be our guest. Uh, a week from tomorrow, Friday the twenty-sixth, we have Scott Renninger from the original Dawn of the Dead. So two exciting guests coming up next week. Uh, everybody stay safe, and until tomorrow night, always stay walking. Good night.